0: My house today uh, functionally is populated by two bachelors. Um I'm I'm one of them, I'm not usually, uh, but Amy and uh the boy that the at-home boys are all in Iowa right now, um going to Colorado by way of Iowa. Today they're actually visiting um our our old church in Fort Dodge. So joyful time for them there. And uh at home there are just two of us. Uh, functioning as bachelors, there's me and our dog Barney, uh, who is old. Barney is is really really old uh, by the by the typical dog year calculation. He's 112, and he's he's a mutt, and I don't know which breeds, but I actually think he's part goat uh, because he's got that kind of constitution, and he can eat anything, and he just keeps going. Uh, but he is getting old. Uh, he's got some kind, of, some kind of infection that I won't describe in any detail. And he's, so he's, he's in some pain, best we can tell. And so we've got him on antibiotics for that, and I have to cook for him to make sure he has a full stomach when he takes his medicine. In any event, um, we're surviving together. And, and, you know, you can tell that things aren't pleasant for him. I think he's also got arthritis. He has trouble with the stairs. He's got this infection but you know what's interesting about Barney is that through all that, he doesn't seem particularly stressed. You can tell that he's in pain, but he's not asking the kinds of questions that we would ask if we were facing those kinds of things. Like, what does this mean? Why is this happening? Why is this happening to me? Do I bear some responsibility for this? I have years of eating out of the garbage contributed to my poor health. What, what is going to happen to me as a result? Is this how it ends? All those kinds of interpretive questions, in many ways, form the majority of the burden that we carry when we go through suffering. The physical pain, the physical trouble when we face it is real. It's real. But there's a burden that we carry as philosophical creatures, as self-conscious Creatures as thinking creatures, that Barney uh, doesn't carry with him. He, he's not trying to figure it out. He's kind of along for the ride, even when it's unpleasant. But we do that kind of interpreting, and it it makes things extra hard for us. And we we really don't have to try to come up with answers to those questions. To imagine answers to them, is this how it ends? And to imagine all kinds of ways in which it might be. One of Paul's concerns for the Thessalonians in this part of the letter, one of the concerns that he expresses is the concern that they would interpret their suffering in such a way as to cause them to turn away from Jesus. That's one of his concerns here for them. He has another concern as well, and that is that that he feels personally responsible for them because he is the one, along with his co-workers, who's led them into the place in which they are now suffering. They're suffering because they are followers of Christ, and they're being opposed by people who oppose the gospel of Christ. And so Paul feels personal responsibility for them. We see that personal responsibility expressed in this passage of 1 Thessalonians as well. We'll be in chapter, chapter 2, 17 through chapter 3, verse 5. But I think we're, as we see Paul trying to help the Thessalonians interpret their troubles in the right way, we also see Paul modeling the right kind of mindset for his concern, for his responsibility for them. You can imagine if you've, if you've led people uh, to to something, in this case, he's led people to follow Christ and it's hard for them and he's not there with them, you can imagine wondering, gosh, what do they think about me? Are they mad at me or are they pleased with me? What, how, how are they thinking about me through all this? It's a, just a natural reflex, isn't it? And to think, gosh, if I could just be there and explain myself and make sure that they know that, that, that I didn't do something wrong when I was doing this. That's not Paul's impulse. At least it's not the impulse that he gives into here. He's not mainly concerned about what do you think about me. He's mainly concerned, what do you think about Jesus? When you interpret your troubles and you try to ask, why is this happening? What's this about? Is is Jesus at the center of your answers? That, he, he would say, is my concern. My concern is not so much what you think about me. It's what you think about Jesus. My concern is that your troubles and the way you interpret them are going to point your trust somewhere. You're going to trust in something or in someone, and I want to do everything that I can, even at sacrifice to myself, to make sure that that trust in your troubles is pointed to Jesus. So that question, why is this happening And that question, what do I want for you, are both at work in this passage this morning. And at the center of the answers to both is the person of Jesus. This is 1 Thessalonians 2, 17 through 3, 5. I want to read it now for us. 1 Thessalonians 2, 17 through 3, 5. But since we were torn away from you, brothers, for a short time in person, not in heart, We endeavored the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face because we wanted to come to you. I, Paul, again and again, but Satan hindered us. For what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at his coming? Is it not you? For you are our glory and joy. Therefore, when we could bear it no longer, we were willing to be left behind at Athens alone. I sent to learn about your faith for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you and our labor would be in vain. This is the word of the Lord. So here Paul continues reflecting on his history with the Thessalonians. You can see that even even with a short time with them, he's built a deeply personal relationship. And so he spends the first half of the letter reflecting on his relationship with them and reflecting on his history with them. What Paul talks about now reflects on his travel history with, uh, with Silas and with Timothy, his co-workers. And I don't know if we have a, a, a map available to show on the screen. If we don't, that, that's fine. There really are four cities that are at play here. They're they're all in the modern country of Greece, and they all have to do with with Paul's travel history with the Thessalonians. He's he's been in uh, Thessalonica. From Thessalonica, he has gone uh, southwest to Berea. He was run out of Thessalonica. And uh, Silas and Timothy go with him eventually. Then... Uh, he goes on from Berea to Athens. It's quite a bit further south. That's where he ends up. And when he goes to Athens, Silas and Timothy don't go with him, but we know from Acts 17.10, I'll just turn there briefly. From Acts 17.10, the brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they arrived, he went into the Jewish synagogue. Then, verse 15 of Acts 17, those who conducted Paul brought him as far as Athens, and after receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible, they departed. So they go Thessalonica, down to Berea, then down to Athens, but Silas and Timothy don't come with him at first. It appears, this part isn't recorded in Acts, but it appears that Silas and Timothy sometime after the fact do come to athens as paul had requested and they meet him there while they're in athens they keep looking back their hearts are pulled back to thessalonica and there seems to be this question at work in their hearts what about the thessalonians we we were torn away from them because we we faced this opposition in thessalonica it actually started to become dangerous for the thessalonian believers themselves and they snuck us out of town, and we left, And but our hearts are still there. We're concerned about them. We're wondering, what, how are they doing? They were brand new believers. We would have loved to stay there and establish them further in the faith, but we just didn't have the opportunity. We've been driven out. We were, to use Paul's words in chapter 2, verse 17, we were torn away from you. We... We tried, he said, we longed to get back. We, we we tried with great desire to see you face to face. We tried to figure out some way to get back to you in Thessalonica, but we couldn't because, Paul said, Satan hindered us. That's in verse 18. We, we have an educated guess as to what Paul means by saying Satan hindered us. Uh, there may have been some direct spiritual attack that Satan was using to hinder them. Somehow it's clear to Paul that this is not simply um, God saying, nope, now, now you go to Athens and then from Athens, you'll go to Corinth. Although God is in charge, but Paul can tell that Satan is actively at work, keeping them from coming back to the Thessalonians. What indication does he have about that? Well, we we have a hint from the immediate context even here in 1st Thessalonians in chapter 2 verses 14 through 15 or 14 through 16 rather paul has described those who have opposed the gospel uh, they they did it in they did it against the churches in Judea in the land of Israel near Jerusalem they did it there And they're continuing to do it everywhere that Paul goes. And so Paul describes in verse 15, those who drove us out and oppose all mankind and displease God. And they hinder us from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved. And that's exactly what happened to Paul in Thessalonica. So when he refers to being driven out, I think he has Thessalonica in mind. They drove us out of there. They oppose all mankind. And those people are still there. They're still in Thessalonica, and they have a strategy in place for making it really hard for us to come back. And here's the strategy. You have have unbelievers among the Jewish community who oppose the gospel. In Thessalonica, they teamed up with what's called the rabble. These are more than likely Gentiles who are not believers. And they stirred them up, and this group together came and started opposing the believers. And it wasn't only the unbelieving Jewish community and the Gentile rabble. They actually, the the, the, the Jewish leaders in particular, had managed to tap into a deep concern among the city leaders. Thessalonica is a leading city in the Roman Empire in this region. And there was a special responsibility among these leading cities to keep the peace. At all costs, do not allow any riots. Uh, keep the peace, keep things nice. And the city leaders have a special special responsibility to do this. Well, when Paul and his co-workers are in Thessalonica, the Jewish leaders and the rabble stir up a crowd and they point the finger at Paul and at the other believers. And the end result of this is that the city leaders take money as a pledge from one of the new believers in Thessalonica. And what this appears to be is essentially a guarantee that Christians would not be the occasion for unrest in Thessalonica. You give us money, and if you see to it that Christians don't cause unrest in Thessalonica, then eventually uh, maybe you can have your pledge money back. So there's a risk on the ground in Thessalonica. Uh, it, it appears a financial risk, maybe a significant one. And if Paul comes back, he would be creating a risk not only for himself, but for other new believers there. So that makes it really hard. And you can imagine him and Silas and Timothy thinking, how how can we get back there? They need our help, but we can't do it because we'll be risking other believers in Thessalonica. And so it's not a big stretch to draw a line from being hindered by unbelieving humans to seeing the strategies of the enemy at work in keeping us Thessalonians from coming to see you. So his concern for them both keeps him away and makes him long to be with them. This is more than just a matter of obligation they they have his heart he loves them and so being kept away is just heart-wrenching for paul and you you hear that in his language when when he says we were torn away from you not in heart we endeavored eagerly and with great desire again and again to come to you now even at a at a basic human level this is understandable right being part of a, a common fan base uh, creates camaraderie. Uh, Peter was just describing the first time he went to a Chiefs game when he was in seventh grade. And, and you get together with 70,000 of your closest friends, and it's like, we're in this together. And, and of course, we love each other because we're all Chiefs fans. And, and that's a normal human reaction. And you can sort of imagine that with Paul. Here, Paul has brought a new message to the Thessalonians, And perhaps a small handful of them have said, we believe you and we're going to follow you. And that creates affection because you're now part of our people, right? There's something much bigger at work here. Paul's affection for the Thessalonians is not simply because they've agreed with him and chosen to believe what he has brought to them. At the center of his affection for them is not Paul, Christ. And that's where Paul points next. Why? Why are you so important to us? He says, because you are our crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at his coming. That's verse 19. You are precious to us because you're precious to Jesus. And the thing that we're looking forward to as we bring you into relationship with Jesus we anticipate a time when jesus is going to come back and we will get to offer you to him he'll come back and we'll get to say to him you 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 died for sinners and here are sinners that that we brought you to and they trusted you and they're yours and and paul said that that is a joy that we look forward to and that drives us now you belong to him it's it's worth pausing there for a minute isn't it and and to ask the question is is that our heart as we try to draw people to jesus is that our heart as we try to encourage people to become a part of our church there there is a there there's just a natural tendency to have affection for people who join us in what we're doing and that's not wrong in itself it's it's cool To be a part of something that other people are a part of. When people follow you, it shows that you have something worth saying. More people will come if more people are here. All these kinds there's there's practical value to some of these things. We could use help with some things. When this, this this happens for pastors, especially when pastors get together. When people ask how big our church is, it's nice to give an answer that proves that I'm good at something. I hope that sounds a little bit gross to you, because it kind of is. But there's you can you can perhaps sympathize with the natural reflex, the natural impulse to make bringing people here about me, to make bringing people here about us. And that's that's not how Paul's affections are built. They're real. He is trying to draw people, and yet his affections are freed from wanting to make followers for himself because he's wanting to make followers for Jesus. And he envisions a day when that will be totally worth it. You are our glory, you are our crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at his coming. That that kind of anticipation, that picture of our future, that picture of what what, what us drawing people to Jesus, drawing people into a healthy church involvement is all about, that picture actually frees us for real affection, for the kind of affection that isn't compromised by wondering, but what do you think about me? We want to know what people think about Jesus. Paul's concerned about that. He's concerned about how they're handling the trouble that they're facing, so he does what it takes. That's in chapter 3, verses 1 through 5. When Paul left Berea, so you got Thessalonica, Berea, then down to Athens, when Paul left Berea for Athens, he gave instructions for Silas and Timothy to join him there as soon as they're able. Eventually, they do, and while they're there, they're looking back, saying, What about the Thessalonians? And and eventually, finally, Paul says, we could stand it no longer. And so, we were willing to be left behind at Athens alone. Paul says, our hearts so longed for you that that we were actually willing to endure more separation in order to care for you. And so, they did. Verse 2, so we sent Timothy. Timothy is the youngest among this threesome. And so it's likely that because Paul and Silas were the older ones, Paul and Silas were probably the more recognized leaders, there was a better opportunity that Timothy could sort of get into town and out of town without being recognized as one of these leaders, without creating as much risk for himself and without creating as much risk for the Thessalonian believers. That, that seems to be the idea that's behind sending Timothy. At the same time, sending him was no small decision. It does create risk for him, and it creates a sacrifice for Paul and Silas. They describe it as being left behind in Athens alone. Being parted from one another today is just such a different experience than it used to be. We're parted from one another today, and we can still talk to each other face to face. It's a totally different experience. When when Timothy uh, walks out of sight, or when Timothy gets on that ship, they are totally cut off from him. He's, he's, he's a, a precious co-worker to them, and there aren't very many of them together, and they're sending him away, being left behind, humanly speaking, in Athens, alone. You're deprived of him, and you don't know what will happen to him. But Paul says it's worth it. You're worth it. It's worth it to us, and it's worth it to you. And even though Timothy, we hope, is not recognized by the city leaders when he comes into town, he is recognized in the most important way. Uh, Timothy is not a throwaway. Timothy is not kind of an an expendable um, errand boy. Timothy, we have sent Timothy to you, he says, In verse 2, as God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ. That's a rather unusual description in the New Testament. Not only our co-worker, but God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ. Timothy understood and took hold of both his significance in his work. God's actually using him and his dependence on God in this work. He understands that he's got a deep responsibility and a deep privilege, and he carries that with him, Thessalonians, as he comes back to you. He's participating in what God is doing to reconcile and transform people in Christ. So we've sent to you the kind of person that takes that role seriously. We, We have deep concern that drives us to do that. You have our heart, and as a result, we miss you. And we don't only miss you, we are also concerned for you. We've sent Timothy back to you because we have a deep concern. We wanted somebody trustworthy to be there with you, verse 2, to establish and exhort you in your faith. We wanted to make sure that your trust is pointed in the right direction, because that trust is going to point somewhere, and that trust can get moved. That's Paul's concern. We've sent him to you to establish and exhort you in your faith, verse 3, so that no one be moved by these afflictions, the afflictions that he's mentioned in verse 14. You brothers became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea, For you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews. Those afflictions move us. They move the direction of our trust. They do that in a variety of ways. And here we are back at this question of interpreting our troubles. What do these troubles mean? And and why are they happening? And as a result of the answers to those questions, who, who can I really reliably trust in? Where can I find real security, especially when I'm facing this trouble? We will always answer those questions. We're always prone to answer those questions in a way that's dangerous, in a way that points our trust somewhere else. If you and I, uh, as, as modern American people, were suddenly facing the kind of trouble that the Thessalonians were facing, We might have an interpretation that says something like, I don't deserve this to happen. And God certainly wouldn't want this to happen to me. This can't possibly be what Christianity is supposed to be like. That's one possible interpretation. It might be something like, the abuse that I'm suffering really isn't a spiritual issue at all. It's a political issue. And so I need to fix it by political means by making sure that, that, that the political powers that be protect my rights. That, that's where, where my ultimate hope in this situation lies. It's an easy impulse for us. It might just be something that's, that's, that's very simply individualistic. I can make this problem go away. I can solve this problem. Those might be be interpretations that we would gather from facing that kind of affliction. It it might have been a little different for the Thessalonians. They had a different set of sort of cultural norms. It might have been an interpretation like, here I'm suffering. Only inferior people suffer. Only the weak suffer. When somebody suffers, it proves they're not as good as the strong who don't suffer. And if I'm supposed to have victory in jesus then this isn't working out what good is following jesus doing for me you might be looking around and saying everybody in the majority religions whether that's roman paganism or 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 judaism everybody in these religions opposes this message that i believe and the people who taught it to me are gone so what assurance do i have that this is real Every time those questions are asked, the, the needle of our trust is, is shivering, it's shaking, and it's going to point somewhere. We will always look to someone or to something for reliability and for security and for happiness. The answer that we choose will always move us toward trust in something. So our happiness and security then found in social status? Or in political power? Are they found in being in the majority? Are they found in pacifying the gods with the help of a temple prostitute? All of these things maybe could have been things that that are on this gauge that the trust needle points to and would be easy to turn to if I interpret my troubles in the wrong way. Or, on the other hand, are happiness and security Found in the resurrected Jesus. We're going to fill in the blank, but the question is who is reliable? And so, in order to help the Thessalonians answer that question well, answer that question in a way that leads to life, answer that question in a way that's truly safe, Timothy has come to them with an affirmation of the reliability of Jesus. He's done that. Timothy has has brought them encouragement that Jesus is trustworthy. You can rely on him. He's done that in a really, perhaps, unexpected way. We see that in the second half of verse 3 through verse 4. When Timothy came to you to establish you in your faith, to point your trust needle in the right direction, he's told you, Paul says, what you yourselves know. He's told you the same thing that we kept telling you beforehand. And he's he's come to establish your faith by telling you that. What is it that we told you beforehand that he wants to establish your faith with? That we were to suffer affliction just as it has come to pass. This is part of how Timothy has come to establish you by saying, We told you when we were with you that you were going to suffer. Isn't that encouraging? (laughs) that we told you this was going to happen. Well, in a very important way, it actually is. Because what does it tell you? Paul's not simply saying, look, we warned you already, and you signed up for this, so don't complain. This is your choice. That's not his point. He's saying two things. He's giving them at least two gospel interpretations of their trouble. First, we've been told about this, by somebody reliable. Somebody told us this was going to happen. In fact, Jesus himself told us this was going to happen. And as it happens, his word is shown to be reliable. You can trust in it. <clears throat> and second, there's a purpose. There's a purpose to it. As you see that Jesus' prediction of your suffering proves reliable, that points you to the realization that his purpose for your suffering is reliable as well. It's not simply something you endure. This is something that's getting you somewhere. Jesus has said these very things. I don't know if this is what Paul has in mind when he he comes to the Thessalonians and says, as Christians, we're going to suffer affliction. But they match the words of Jesus. Matthew 5, 11, and 12. Blessed are you, when others when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Paul's telling the Thessalonians you're standing in the same stream of those who have been faithful to the true and living God for centuries, and you're experiencing the same kinds of trouble. Jesus said it would happen. It has happened. Here's one indication that his word is reliable. So it turns out that the very experience that could shake your faith actually has good reason to steady it, to establish it. The things that Jesus told us to expect have proven reliable. And this is about more than prediction. This is about purpose as well. Think about this. They must have brought this message to the Thessalonians because if they brought the message to the Thessalonians that, that, sim- that you're going to suffer if you trust in Jesus, then why? and that was the end of the story, then why would any of them have chosen to trust the resurrected Christ? There's always promise of... Redemption, promise of safety, promise that it will end well, that comes with the promise of temporary suffering. The promises of trouble are always tied to bigger promises of rescue. You see this all through First Thessalonians. It's constantly tied to the expectation that Jesus will come back, and when he does, he will bring relief for us. Verse, verse 10 of chapter 1, you you've learned to wait for His Son, for God's Son from heaven, whom He raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Chapter three eleven through 13, now Paul's praying for them, now may our God and Father Himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you, And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. There's a glorious day coming and God is preparing you for that glorious day. And he's even using this suffering to do that by causing this suffering not to shake your faith in Jesus but to steady your faith in Jesus. That's what's going to prepare you to see him and to see him with holiness and with joy. Continuing to rely on Jesus is a matter of life and death. So Paul says, we did what it took to make sure that you saw your afflictions in a steadying way, in a way that pointed you to Christ. As I processed all this, Paul says in verse 5, for this reason when I could bear it no longer, I sent to learn about your faith. I had I had to know. I had to know that you were continuing to rely on Jesus and there is a great deal at stake. Life and death for fear. I sent to learn about your faith for fear that somehow... The tempter had tempted you, and our labor would be in vain. The enemy's goal is not just to cause us trouble. Have you ever been having a a really bad day and just wondered, gosh, is is this a spiritual attack? Is Satan attacking me? Well, he might be, but the purpose of his attack is not to give you a bad day. He's glad for you to have a good day and he's certainly willing for you to have a bad day, what he wants to do is to move the needle of your trust to anywhere other than Jesus. That's what his temptation is, is about, whether he's, whether he's cooperating with you having a great day or cooperating, as far as he's able, with you having a bad day. His goal is to get you to conclude from your trouble that Jesus isn't reliable, that there has to be a better way. There has to be a better way to find security and fulfillment. And the wrong answers to the question, why is this happening, can be deadly. The enemy is actively trying to keep people from trusting in Jesus. Even people who have already said that they trust in Jesus, who have made a profession of faith in Jesus. Paul knows that only those who trust in Jesus will be saved. Those who trust in Jesus, those who genuinely trust in Jesus will persevere in their trust. And he says, Thessalonians, if 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 you don't, then our glory and joy is going to turn to dust and ashes. It would break our hearts to hear that our labor among you had been in vain. Not only because we worked hard and we don't want our labor wasted, but because you mean so much to us. We've invested so heavily in you that you have our hearts and we don't want our labor to be in vain. So I just want to revisit those those two concerns. Those two concerns that, that Paul has reflected on here, that he has expressed. The concern that our interpretations move us. We're not like Barney. Barney's kind of along for the ride. When good things or bad things happen to us, we will always, whether we know it or not, we'll always ask the question, things like, why is this happening? What does this say about where I can find happiness and security? What does this say about where to find ultimate life And we will always move the trust needle somewhere. Let's be on the lookout for that. Let's watch for that as we experience, especially as we experience hardship. Jesus is reliable. Let's watch for the answers, especially the answers that we say out loud. Those can be an indication as to where our trust is pointing at any given time. And we don't do this alone, right? We need help. We need help with our interpretations. And so we help each other, just like Paul sought earnestly, at, at great cost to himself, to help the Thessalonians with this. To do it in a way that was tender and gentle, that recognized their affliction, and at the same time that insisted on saying, Jesus really is reliable. When we work with God, when we are his co-workers, we risk our labor. We we take on risk. We do hard things, and, and we can't guarantee the end result of that work. And yet it's worth it. It's worth doing it, so long as we're risking it on the right things. So long as when we are working to help people move in the right direction, We're not saying, hey, come follow me. Come be like me. Join in what I'm doing because I'm doing it. So long as we're saying, follow Jesus. We can do that by being tangible channels of his love. Like Timothy, by making the trip to Thessalonica, by being there, by caring for them in person, at risk to himself and at sacrifice to Paul and Silas and and then when the moment is right we need to speak we need to speak the name of Jesus and the promises of Jesus to one another we we want to be together sometimes like job's friends didn't do we just need to be together silently and sometimes we need to speak a better word than job's friends were able to speak not simply hey thessalonians buck up you knew about this you just need to be good. And if you're good, then God will bless you and everything will be fine. No, there is a better hope for you than yourself. There's a better hope for you than us. There's a better hope for you than your own behavior or success or anything else you might put your trust in. Jesus is going to return. If you continue to trust in him, then he will establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. The good news is there's a greater power than Paul or his co-workers or the Thessalonians that's protecting them against the powerful influences of the enemy. Paul gets really good news about that next week. Father, what a privilege to be your co-workers or we do this in real time and there are deep concerns that we have for others that we invest in Uh, none of our work is enough to guarantee the end success of 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 what we're seeking to do but we acknowledge before you that it's not about us the power is not from us the power is in Jesus and that the one who is in us is greater than the one who is in the world So help us to remember as we work with you that our labor is not in vain. Help us to help people to point the needle of their trust to Jesus alone. We pray this in his name. Amen.